This is the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 30. On today's episode, Madison Greenstone speaks with violinists Kier Gogwilt and Johnny Chang about their recent album, Hope Lies Fallow, released on another timbre. The album features six tracks, all developed by Johnny and Kier, all of which have their starting points in works by Hildegard von Bingen, who was active in the medieval period, and Orlando di Lasso, an icon of late Renaissance music. It's a fascinating conversation about collaboration, time, process, tuning, and spirituality, among other things. And I'll let Madison take it from here. Hi, everyone. I'm Madison Greenstone, the clarinetist of TAC. And today we'll be talking with Kier Gogwalt and Johnny Chang about their album, Hope Lies Fallow. Kier is a violinist, improviser, scholar, and composer residing in New York, whose work combines historical research and collaborative experimentation. These collaborations encompass work with dancer Bobby Jean Smith, composers Celeste Oram and Carolyn Chen, bassist Kyle Modell, and their improvising duo called Tree Search, and with Johnny. Here is also a founding member of the New York City-based collective, American Modern Opera Company. Johnny is a violinist and composer based in Aotearoa, New Zealand, whose work engages in extended exploration surrounding the relationships of sound and listening. Johnny's collaborations extend a far reach into the roster of the Vondelweiser group, and he's worked extensively with Catherine Lamb in researching and performing the fragmentary remnants of the works of late Vedic-era composer Viola Torres. Kier and Johnny began playing together in February 2021, while based in Auckland. Their work follows long-form durational meditations on medieval and Renaissance music. The album explores the imaginative and expressive potentials of just intonation, heterophony, and ornamentation in reapproaching historical music. Okay, so <laughs> welcome, Kier. Welcome, Johnny. <laughs> Thank um, you, friends. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. Hi. I'm really happy that we're going to host this conversation and see where it leads us. First and foremost is kind of introducing the album, Hope Lies Fallow. How did you both start working together? You want to take that, Kier? I think I reached out to you, Johnny, because we were both going to speak on one of the the University of Auckland Music Department had like a composers forum and we were both going to speak on it, I think on the same day. And I was sort of starved for human contact at that point or like contact with other musicians, <laughs> like-minded musicians. So we connected and met up at uh, the place you were then living in, in Orewa, which is, I hesitate to call it a suburb. It's kind of like a exurb or something. Um, but we would just kind of, we started meeting up pretty much weekly and just playing together. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my version. Um, I, I just moved back to New Zealand. So I think I, um, I hadn't gotten to the point where, so this was early 2021. I hadn't figured out that I was, uh, needing to find, uh, fellow sympathetic listeners um, either on the violin or composers, but uh, I was really glad that Kier wrote me. And I think I hadn't really uh, worked too much with other violinists up to that point. It's funny to say, but that's actually the case. So, um, yeah, Same, that's how we started. It's 
It's usually we repel each other. <laughs> That's true. Too many high frequencies going on at the same time. I mean, you both are much more than just violinists. I mean, you're you're kind of also meeting as improvisers, as scholars, as composers. So maybe that counterbalances <laughs> the violin aspect. Oh yeah, maybe. I mean, it was all about violin playing, though, in a way. I think Johnny, you've been playing a lot of viola, and so it was nice to come back to violin. And I was writing a dissertation on violin playing at the time. I think there was like a lot of instrument specific. I mean, it's very nice of you to imagine that we're more than violinists. <laughs> but um, I do kind of feel like everything creative that I do comes from the instruments and the history of playing it. How did you both come to the music of, yeah, this historical music, the music of Bingen and uh, Orlando de Lasso? Like, who drew you to it? For me, um, I think this is a part of my own journey coming back to more the classical, traditional, conventional playing on the violin. And in terms of musical literature, the the parallel to that would be the coming uh, coming back to what we refer to as historical music, specifically the genres of Renaissance or Baroque music. And I really enjoy rethinking my yeah, relationship to the music again and the priority not being, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's extract from what I see of the score and execute the piece as can be seen on a PDF properly so that was quite liberating for that not to be the primary concern anymore but still you know being quite respectful of the materials and the music and and have that be the basis of beginning a relationship with another human being another performer you know here so yeah I think I lost track of the question but um, <laughs> I think I, that was part, partly the starting point yeah. Well, I'll, I mean, I've talked extensively about this with both you, Johnny, and, Madison, and you, Madison. I mean, the question of like, what is, you know, the boundary between interpretation and creation and composition, especially when you're talking about the kind of documents that we were playing with, you know, with these medieval chants that there, there, there are actually very few clues in this, in the scores for how to sing or play them. And they were such like a context dependent thing. And like, we are already lifting it out of context by like reading them on iPads and playing them on the violin on metal strings and 2021. I think in a way, like my answer to the question would be like for the Orlando Di Lasso pieces anyway, they just happened to be on my iPad because I think Celeste had been singing them with friends and had downloaded them on my iPad. And so they were just there and we started sight reading them the first time we met up. But I, I think like to, to go back to Johnny's point, like there was something about coming at them with, you know, like that being like the neutral terrain between the two of us and, and like the very different backgrounds that, that we have as musicians to kind of explore that together and find common ground there was um, really energizing and a really nice antidote to the languishing of the pandemic that's <laughs> yeah, that's <cool>. yeah. <laughs> I, I think it says something of what we've both been doing that we would con- be able to consider something like Beethoven violin concerto or Orlando de Lasso as neutral terrain I think it's I think that's quite a 
extraordinary point, actually. It's funny because it's it's neutral and both it's both neutral and very charged at the same time. Like it's neutral in the sense that like, naturally, yeah, it's yeah. it's all on IMSLP. Like it's all public <laughs> domain. Like we can do whatever the fuck we want with it. But like it's not neutral in the sense that like it's full of <laughs> all this stuff. Yeah, that's why actually I'm I'm quite happy also to be uh, just to approach some material, other instruments, or repetitively, and definitely far from systematic from my side. That seems to be my mode uh, for quite a long time. So that's I think I'm just running with that at this point. I can't really fix it. <laughs> but uh, the Hildegard from Bingen for me was also something that I dealt with a few years ago and moved away from. But then, you know, working with Keir and the Orlando pieces seemed the perfect time to bring it back and just continue with that. Sewing together a couple things. Um, what you're doing is, like, what you're doing collaboratively is super fascinating as it's, like, taking this historical document, you know, clan chant, lasses, fragments, and, like, reverberating them through time and through trans-historical materials, like here what you're saying, you know, you're playing on these kind of modern instruments with metal strings in accretion of all the sort of sedimented histories of luthier violin making, then all the sort of sedimented histories of, you know, the evolution of violin technique, which I know you've written quite a bit about. <laughs> so then to approach these pieces, but from like a very, from a very creative and explorative standpoint, but as a mode of study, as a mode of interpretation that also makes a new perspective on these pieces, I find to be very fascinating because it also like makes knowledge in a certain mm. way. Definitely. Yeah. I guess one of the things that I was thinking of a lot about sort of as we were making it, but also as we were preparing the record and like mixing it and putting it all together was Orlando Di Lasso and Hildegard von Bingen are like very, very different composers. And not only are they separated by like three or 400 years or something like that, but there's also like this kind of openness in the being. And the Orlando de Lasso is very like metered and very like, it really matters that you play everything in time together because <laughs> that's kind of how the counterpoint works. And then the Hildegard stuff is mostly monophonic. And I mean, Johnny's compositions sort of played with heterophony in, in different ways, but the original texts are monophonic. Yeah, so one of the things I kept thinking about was what brings these two things together? Like, there's such different texts. And I think for me, like, one of the struggles in turning the Dilasso duets into open improvisatory pieces was that they were so structured. And so it was kind of like an exercise in, like, following the bits of his music that did feel more like free and melismatic and kind of like improvising on those. But then of course, as soon as we got into a pattern and like wrote it down and composed it, you know, we encountered the same problem of, <laughs> of it then becoming kind of closed again. Um, one of the things that I, that I really enjoyed about Johnny's scores with the Bingham was how little information <laughs> or how you know how little information they gave you in terms of like prescriptive like these are the notes you should play it was like very open and and so it kind of forced us to support 
the minimalism of what the other person was doing by like matching and hearing and tracing and the two things together where there was just like such different exercises. And I think that the way that I can possibly bring this back to your question is that I do feel like there were bits in the Orlando de Lasso where I felt like this is, this is like a remnant or like a fragment of like an earlier menstrual approach to writing for a voice in which like maybe he was taking this bit that this like bit of chant that would have been like improvised or like out of time and putting it into a metered situation. And maybe we're like kind of reaching in there and unlocking it and letting it be a little freer again. But there's always this like cycle of like you open it up and then it finds a form again and then you open it up and then it finds a form again. And I feel like that really characterizes a lot of threads and movements in music history as well as in like individual creative processes. So it was kind of nice to see those rhythms and echoes and it was like a very motivating problem to have. I think even now you, I think you referenced my score for the, for the bing and the resonances. And I think even now I hesitate to call that my score because it's built on the sessions that we had been doing. And I felt like we went from there naturally to trying out the Hildegard resonances or some aspects of it, but still really centered around the the piece itself. So I, I quite, I still really enjoy thinking about that as a collaborative piece and not just because we need two people, actually including Celeste, three of us to, to realize it, but um, I think all of us had to devote creative energy to bring that piece to life and, um, or at least that, the context for the piece um, to life and well, at least the context that we've created for ourselves in the 2021 New Zealand, like down under void. I still actually question whether that's a, like just the authorship of that piece that you've heard in the, in the recording. And this is the last track, right? For the bird resonances. It's the, yes, Hildegard resonances, yes. I had a question about the use of resonances. Like, obviously, on kind of first impression, it references, you know, the sort of resonant qualities of your instruments and just kind of how, like, lush and vibrant that is and also, you know, a resonance of a space. But to me, the word resonance has, like, a deeply sort of generative connotation. Like, resonance also connotes something that is intrinsic, like resonant frequency of the space, the resonant frequency of an instrument. Um, so something that's already there and active that is drawn out, whereas it's so easy sometimes to refer to working with historical or ancient materials as like echoes, you know, it's echoing from times past or and how von Unzeit or stuff like that. In my um, collaborations with Cat Lamb, there were discussions on resonances, but I think that's that it's a specific context of some of the pieces that um, her and Brian Eubanks have been doing and some of the ideas that we um, discussed for her own compositions as well as certain structural aspects that were relevant in our Villatoros project. On the other hand, the score of Hildegard Resonances, I think, came from at least 2012 or 2013. So that's just before we started to, Kat and I started to work together a bit more intensively. But I, I still think, I like resonances that deals with the extra musical aspect quite 
conveniently or elegantly as well. Um, it's not just about the music. We Kira and I connected to, uh, enough to keep working together, and that's a resonance with each other. And there's the, I think the more obvious, clear example of the instrumental resonances and if a composer's working on a string quartet or or uh, orchestra work, they want to find the proper resonance for the instruments. But for, for me, definitely the sociological aspect of resonance. I'm really a lot more interested in this part of music making nowadays. Yeah, that kind of leads to something else. I was wondering, um, this album or these set of pieces, it seems so just sort of unique. It's like it is you two playing like with breadth and depth of your knowledge of like what you've been studying and working on and the other points of references and collaborations that you've both been engaged with. I want to ask more about the collaboration or the chamber music making side of it and what reinterpreting this music did in that regard. It's funny because I, yeah, I feel like chamber music is, is so often lauded as this model for sociable and liberal interactions between enlightened people <laughs> and like so often it's actually a disaster <laughs> i've had so many experiences like playing like a brahms quintet or something where people are approaching the music in such ways that are really like ideologically inc incompatible with each other but within like the rehearsal context there's no way to like actually parse what those like ideological differences are because you're just like arguing in terms of like when you should come in and with what kind of sound and all these things which are like incredibly like personal statements that are like really like ingrained in your body and your music making but you're not actually arguing about intonation or you're not actually arguing about tone you're arguing about your whole worldview on like <laughs> what this music means and why it counts i guess i bring that up because it was kind of nice to play music that wasn't originally like intended for our instruments first of all and i mean it's kind of a cliche at this point but like playing early music is a way to like avoid all the supercharged ideological bullshit of like the classical romantic era which you know like it's not necessarily like to say that early music is like pure or like removed from that but it's just farther away from us so it's kind of again like more neutral territory i guess but I think part of approaching it for me was when I was living in Auckland, when we started collaborating, I, I was listening to the Viola Taurus record like a lot. <laughs> like I was, I was pretty obsessed with the record and I was just hadn't really ever like in my life lived at the, the pace of music making like that. Like, and it was kind of like an artifact of the pandemic, I guess, that life had slowed down a lot and you know we had this opportunity to just like make music that came out of like a lot of shared time and an attempt to like really sort of like meet the other person where they were at so yeah I don't know for me I, I'm like that's that kind of comes closer to the ideal of like what I feel like Jim, how often music is often described and yeah I don't I wouldn't say it's necessarily new like I think a lot of people have probably arrived at that but it was new definitely it was new for for me in a way i love that you brought in the viola Toros project but as a parallel to how you were living life in new zealand that's that's so cool we all had to live that way for a while 
what's really strange for me is to think about like the way that that music came about with Cat Lamb, such slow moving and broad in scope in some ways, but then the way we were living over there in Berlin somehow was able to provoke that or support that desire to make that kind of music. But this is a different manifestation of that nothingness happening, even though it's not nothing, just living our lives and just trying to make it through another lockdown period. And living in the basement of your parents-in-law. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that, that is a, that is a depressing sounding uh, sentence, but I've been there. That's a nice basement. <laughs> I know, it's, it is a, it's a very nice basement. But I, I wanted to follow up also on what you talked about with chamber music. I think we even went out of our way to avoid certain technical trappings of what would constitute a, a proper realization in the chamber music context, in the musical performance context of realizing the, the Orlando pieces. Or I think maybe another one was we, we worked on Christian Wolf's violin duo from 1952, I think. I don't know. And I think we allowed the atmosphere of Orlando's music to infuse our realization of the wolf. And yeah, I think there's something. Loose interpretation. Of, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> very loose interpretation. This, um, I, actually, I've always thought about, uh, for example, Vandal Weiser music as. Um, the opposite of music with with a timeline. And I, I think here I use timeline in a, if you want, a negative way. Like you just have to be somewhere by a certain point and, um, you know, shove everybody else aside as you get to that checkpoint and checkpoint. And I think our way of music making that we found was we, we knew that we weren't we didn't have to deal with a checkpoint or the timeline. It was just there. And I don't know. I I don't have a criticism uh, towards classical music. I'm starting to come back to playing it more often, but I've learned to separate the like certain really back, like misgivings to the background and still enjoy the music. But um, I, this, your point about chamber music, I really like. You know, it's, uh, I mean, I also was thinking about these sort of generative structures of listening, the pieces or your compositions, you know, the longest one is a bit over 18 minutes. And I know the Viola Toros compositions are much longer. So kind of like working from your notion of like music with a timeline, this music meets the listener where they are and what pace they understand it. Um, and that pace can be widely variable day to day or minute to minute. But I think I'm also interested in that from a kind of performance perspective too, or a compositional perspective. But then also, you know, in the relation of with the pandemic and like the sort of mass notion that like time just slowed down to a halt and people had nowhere to be. That's my question. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So I use the term languishing and I, and I, we had some notes before this discussion in this Google doc and I linked it to a New York times article about like pandemic, like quote unquote languishing. I mean, it's like, in a way it's really to be like the New York times, like mental health section really helped me out. But like at the same time, it was kind of nice to like 
read an article that was like, oh, that's what I'm experiencing. This feeling of like going nowhere, really feeling like I should be like leaving school and like doing a lot of things and blah, blah. <laughs> like in this article, one, like the antidote, like the so-called antidote to languishing was like flow, finding states of flow and finding states of like, just like concentrated, like being with somebody or something that put you in a state of mind where like you could just be single-mindedly focused on that one thing. And I feel like I really sort of like grew to appreciate this music as like a way of coming to terms with doing nothing a little bit. I don't know. I mean, like at the same time, there were like objective things that we had, we had to do in order to like record it and create discrete pieces and so on. But it was kind of both things happening at the same time both like the ambition and the drive, but also like coupled with like the, just like these experiences of like long durational, like nothingness happening. I also feel that our, um, well, I think your transcriptions or our versions of the Orlando are not, I mean, it's not that if you had the score and you followed along to the recording, and you had the original in front of you, you would, you would catch A, B, C, just the actual linear timeline of what the original is. I think I think maybe this can be said to be a reflection of what the languishing is, We we but we did that a bit more intentionally that I think your transcriptions, your arrangements, um, actually, I don't know how you decided to call that in the end, um, here, but um, we allowed ourselves to focus on a certain aspect of what we wanted to hear. After a certain point, that would take us somewhere else, but still very much in relation to the original. But it's not a direct, you know, one-to-one relationship. Mm. Yeah, there were moments where we sort of just played what he had written, but like sort of out of time, just kind of like waiting mm. for... Mm somebody to like make the dissonance happen and then sort of like play with waiting for the resolution to happen. Yes. So kind of like incorporating a kind of improvisational listening into how the like duration of the form played out. Yeah. yeah like be one way of describing it. Yeah, I think so. I think we became very good at waiting for each other. I mean there's there's an amazing um part in Who Follows Me where one of the violins has this just like long glissando downward I I don't know how long it lasts for but I have the impression that it's just like it's minutes and you don't realize it's this long glissando until it's like until you realize it's been going on for quite a long time and what's beautiful in that is like one the sort of metaphysical implications of just like the glissando and then like meeting it intercepting it in places of like harmonic resonance and building you know these sort of like harmonic blooms on top of it and it just kind of continues and settles and you know nice yeah Yeah, that was that was a fun one that was a hard one to find like the, the sort of like intonational language for it took us a while to to like really figure out what like intervals or non-intervals like worked with the glissando because like I think the, the the instinct was to like play sort of like 
justly in tune with it or to like anticipate like an interval and then like let it arrive and, and dissipate. But yeah, it became kind of like this thing of, I don't know. I mean, Johnny earlier in this conversation sort of disparagingly referred to his own thought as non-systematic, but that's kind of what I love about working with Johnny is that like, it kind of forces you to like think more intu intuitively, you know, cause like I'm a very, I feel like I'm more, I'm quite a systematic thinker and like I liked things to be in place and stuff, but it's kind of nice to be forced to just like feel out, you know, like where, like just like feel like where, so this persona is happening and it's like where, where even a place yourself is it, you know? And it might be like, might feel totally wrong at first, but then like it will settle because like the yeah. thing's moving. So, yeah. Actually, and uh, I think, um, I really enjoyed playing that part of your arrangements. It, it, I think it's a kind of timeline that I can respect. It's a, it's a timeline that, um, on the other hand, actually, <laughs> it's a, it's, it's. I, I feel like that that particular section, there are two of them. It can only be realized at the pace of the player playing it, and so you match what the other person is hearing or i mean i think by this point we know that when we're both playing we're both listening um because we knew at least that much which is the most important part of another player and um for someone else that i wouldn't know that, that i think the trust wouldn't have been there to know that well how does that work for another set of two players that's something they have to find and we found this and so um I think there's timeline music and there's timelines and then there's just how does it fit with two people and um, I'm full of contradictions actually. I, whenever <laughs> I think when we whenever it's talking about music, it's just that's just yeah. No, I love the yeah. contradictions and the ambivalences. Um, I also like love this concept of like the glissando is a timeline in this really material sense. It's like drawing a line along the string, but then it also is like. Mm that line is drawn within the time it takes to get from here to there. Just the sort of like techniques of playing and the techniques of technique like as um, compositional tools and it's kind of inextricable from, you know, the process and practice of composition itself. And I think that, you know, that moment in Who Follows Me kind of like concretizes that in a really gorgeous way. When we were doing this collaboration, I was definitely hoping it would like intersect with my scholarly work that I was working on at that time. Although like whenever I've tried to articulate the connection, it's kind of like fallen apart a little bit. <laughs> so that's my, that's my forewarning, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that like in terms of bodies being like compositional templates, like I think that it's just kind of like an inescapable part of being like a performer composer. And I, I guess like one of the, one of the funny things is that these are like, sacred pieces, both the, the Orlando de Lasso and the Bingen, like they're both pieces meant for like worship and like, you know, sort of like spirituality writ large, um, or like in a specifically Christian sense, rather. I don't think either of us are really religious and like, we weren't necessarily thinking of it as a spiritual exercise, but I think one of the things I've been interested in is, is, in the, is the way that like material bodies become vehicles for like constructs of like the metaphysical, like bodies are 
intricately tied up in the process of like accessing something beyond the material. But it's at the same time, like if it's so inextricable from the materiality of like, say, like a finger sliding down the fingerboard and like meeting different frequencies, then like, is it actually a thing or is it a fiction? Like the idea that we could get beyond it. (laughs) So I don't know. I mean, like there's another ambivalence, I guess. It's like, there's another contradiction. It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't, it's possible that we were trying to access something beyond the physical, but it's also possible that we were just looking for an excuse to hang out. So I don't really know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We found the excuse. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like rituals of communion, but like not in the sort of religious communion, but just like a communion of like friendship, kind of reinscribing that. Yeah. Also in this doc, there is a picture of what Johnny had for breakfast this morning, which is ramen. Um, (laughs) It's kind of, um, I don't think it's ramen, but it's like... um... It's like Malaysian, it's kind of like stir fry noodles. You, you just mix the sauce into a cooked noodle. So usually about three minutes, but I think actually four would have been better. But um, and for, for me, the, the, genre, the genre I was referring to, what I have noticed are different countries, but I was going to say cultures and their way of condensing or synthesizing the soup into the instant powder and how much time is saved for you know the working class for me there's something there in the in the sense of transforming of this material i mean i don't know that's not the greatest parallel because I mean, <laughs> mostly people go well instant anything is that's a bad thing so but i think just the process of what has to be re- like just the reduction process um I find quite fascinating actually. So ramen soup packets, the Japanese one, the Taiwanese or Chinese um, beef noodle soup, and then the Malaysian Singaporean curry laksa um, equivalent. So that's like three different cultures, three different types of soup packets, and I think they all taste different because of the process that they had to go through to turn into um, powder form the dehydration. <laughs> I thought you were gonna talk about like how much art has been made because of instant ramen like all the time all the time that was saved actually cooking and oh wow okay and and put into like recomposing orlando di lasso duets oh no i'm I'm really literal actually yeah that's that's a pretty literal i mean i i I ate a ton of ramen while i was in new zealand and specifically the malaysian kind which mm-hmm. I can't find here, and it's very disappointing. No way, okay. Yeah, maybe we can talk a bit about the tuning. The sort of imaginative approach to tuning in Hope Lies Fallow is like something that is so, so striking. And then also, you know, points towards like material specificities of the instruments. But yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. And also like in relation to opening up the violin and opening up the instrument, you know, it seems just from my listening perspective that there's something kind of like deterritorialized about the playing where the, the harmonics, the tones, the, the harmonies kind of like swim throughout 
throughout the instrumental space and the instrumental register. On the issue or subject of tuning and I think relating it to the music that Kia and I had done, I think it's pretty important to point out first that um, this is a pretty, I think it's a great example of both of us following the notion of, okay, a, a tuned material or tuning um, in a specific way from piece to piece um, intuitively. In my personal experience, I've had a chance to work on music by composers who approach tuning uh, organically uh, and systematically. And so composers like uh, James Tenney, Cat Lamb, and those are the, I think, the two main uh, I don't know, composers that came to mind as probably my um, flagship for what I imagine composing with tuned material is. Um, I don't think either of those composers would appreciate this kind of pedestal putting them on. Um, I just, I think what I really appreciate um, is seeing materials working themselves out in the piece itself. I guess that um, touches on my work as an interpreter, but uh, I think for me in Hope Lies Fellow, the piece that this is most relevant to is I think our realizations of the Hildegard from being in chance where uh, now and then I decide to tune a certain way. I think simply because I think once I think any performer begins to dive into how many ways one can divide a note between the black and white key or, you know, whatever kind of um, imagery you prefer to have, uh, then you just realize, wow, you can just keep going. There's no uh, preference to how people should do something. But I think for us, yeah, um, I was really interested in specifically incorporating um, an Arabic scale it's a tonality that is relevant to the Hildegard chant that we're doing, and there's something to do with the... Well, the Cantigas de Santa Maria, maybe. Right, as well <clears throat> as the Hildegard. It's the yeah. um, it's like the 3-2, but then just the, a semitone-ish above that 3-2 as the melodic, emotionally charged element coming out of a 3-2, the, the fifth, which is quite dominant in the two pieces that we uh, that we played for the album. So, yeah, but then once you dive into it, I realized, well, I mean, where, so if you imagine the tonality is D and A, that's what the fundamental and the, and the is that, well, then where does, the, where does that um, B flat go? Um, I think I started with that question. It, I think it goes back to initially our, what we refer to as the neutral territory, I think, we are not told where to play that B flat, that raised something above the three two, you know, the the DNA fifth. So it felt like there was room to to try it, and um, I think um, here again, I think it was for me really amazing to play with someone like here who I feel like I could try that with. Um, yeah, and I think simply I just wanted to try it and the notion of a, a movable pitch serving different roles, ascending and descending. Consistency was not a, <laughs> a name. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess consistency of certain elements. But one of the things that was so striking for me on the Viola Taurus record is 
the way in which the intonation has really like almost like the primary expressive element because so much of like the articulation and like the tone is so like simple and like deliberate. I think for classical playing, you really train to get your bow to be like an expressive thing. Like you have like a million different phrasings within one bow and that's like seen as like the mark of expressiveness. But if you kind of even that out, then other elements come to the fore and intonation specifically with such a striking mode of imaginative like disorientation in the Taurus stuff. And so I feel like there was a little bit of that going on in our record, but at the same time, I never personally was really able to escape my like training as like the bow as an expressive object. But it was kind of nice that those two things like coexisted in the same space. The whole thing of like shifting the intonation grid slightly so that there's no right or wrong. And that being like sort of one dimension of like the sort of like expressive assemblage that we were putting together. It was a lot of fun to play around with. One thing I wanted to add with regard to the tune material is that in being more intuitive, less structured, less systematic, we were playing in the scales. I'm just sort of putting in the mileage just to see how it works on the instruments. Um, I think everyone has an experience of working on their scales and usually you come to an agreement with your body on, on what fingering, what embouchure, what bowing, all that stuff, right? And, and what, what you're best at, what you're best good at, blah, blah, blah. And I think here um, I felt that the start of that process with, with our tuned materials and how we brought that out well, with each other just through playing. And um, I think that's worth mentioning that, you know, it's the, the practical end of experimenting and c concepts, which is it still comes down to playing and I think how it works on our on our bo respective bodies, you know. So I didn't really want to. Uh, I don't think we we went in that direction, but I think it's nice to not just refer to the material of tuning as in the sort of um, technical sphere. Yeah, these things that are kind of like mathematically seemingly fixed are actually really um, like there's a lot of grit. From my understanding, it's so contingent upon like whether the responsivity of the instrument, humidity, you know, like one's own technical facility and training, and then all of those things like meeting together amongst two people. Yeah, and we, and we actually, I don't think we ever spoke in terms of numbers. And I feel like a lot of it was imitative, like we just like listened and imitated a little bit, which feels like in the vein of early polyphonic writing, which is like imitative you know, voices presumably improvising, like chant on chant and then like imitating each other. And one of my favorite things about the the music is that it's impossible to tell who's playing what. Like I never actually remember who's playing which part and I just can't tell. And which is funny because we have very different sounds, but like somehow in this context, it becomes like a process of like almost trying to like inhabit each other's sounds and spaces so there's also kind of like metaphysical and like social tuning as well as like a kind of physical musical tuning listening to the album never once was i like oh it's trying to imagine what 
scale intonation principles were active. It's like a present creativity within historical study. You have to enliven it with your imagination and with your kind of creative approach now to create a kind of historical empathy with the thing of the past. I actually often wonder what other academics or musicologists would make of, okay, this in this case, what the, um, the album was here, but also our reading of the Hildegard from Bing and Chan. Haven't had anyone reach out yet to say, I had a go at it, I'm... This is my field, um, and this the following is what I think. So that could still happen, we'll see. <laughs> As it seems like things are kind of coming to a natural decrescendo, natural dissolution, <laughs> into the into the resonance of, of the conversation. One thing that is kind of a ritual in the TAC podcast is like asking a, it's like playing a little game at the end. And All right. You're like, would you rather, or just some other kind of fanciful, question-based, speculative thing? Um, I've never been good at would you rather, so I'll ask a different set of questions. If you were to only cook three things for the rest of your life, what would they be? Oh, wow. This is. Are you talking about um, a particular a particular dish, or this is the three? Each one include a Oh, yeah. Not like three ingredients. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I understand. <laughs> Only cook three things. I think I would, I think I would say, um, I think dal might be one of them. Yes. I don't know. It keeps popping into my, my mind is like specific vegetables that I'd like to cook. Nice. Oh, yeah. So like something like, like bok choy or something, mm. baby bok choy, something or another, like a stir fry, but would include other vegetables as well. And then... I don't know. Johnny, you go. You, you, you. All right. I, ha- I have three. Um, okay, go for it. I wrote it down. I even had time to write it down. Um, <laughs> the first one that I would do would be something, a dish that involves some sort of braising. Um, the second one is just rice. And the third one is uh, a soup base. I, I, I mean, I kind of cheated. I left myself a little bit more open. I reinterpreted. I, well, I guess I interpreted the question. So. <laughs> I think my last like food group is potatoes and eggs. Oh, nice! Yeah. <laughs> As like one singular food group. Yeah, yeah just like the combination of potatoes and eggs. So. If I'm, uh, I think when I crave potatoes and eggs, I'm gonna invite you to eat with me. Then I think between the two of us, we can now uh, we've got a pretty good meal going. Or Sounds good. Breakfast. Potatoes and eggs. See you. See you there. <laughs> <laughs> Both very similarly shaped foods. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, well, thanks, Madison, for. Yeah. Yeah. I was saying this. It's been fun. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. It's. Yeah, this has been a really beautiful conversation. This has been the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 30. For more information about the album and Kier and Johnny and some other things mentioned in the episode, check out our show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you're subscribed. If you're able to like it or rate it or leave us a review, 
please do. It really makes a huge difference to us and to getting this podcast in front of more ears, inside of more ears. A listener recently said on the Apple Podcasts app that we are intoxicatingly warm and irrepressibly nerdy. Thank you so much, Nobo. And for the rest of your review, we feel so seen. This episode was produced and edited by Madison Greenstone and me, Charlotte Mundy, with additional production by Marina Kifferstein. We will leave you with an excerpt from the fifth track of Hope Lies Fallow. It's called Who Follows Me and features vocals by Celeste Oram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>